If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Dominic Splintoski, and I'm the owner of Trout Bitten and the author of TroutBitten.com. All right, we're getting back to some streamer talk in this episode, because I know we all love fishing the long flies when given the chance. Day-to-day, many of us fish streamers off and on, and we're always kind of looking for that next great streamer bite. So the longer we toss around streamers, the more we realize that it's the most subtle changes in presentation that make a difference. Faster or slower? Sure. But how about letting the fly free fall in the current? What about a slight cross lead before reestablishing a strike zone path in just one scene? Or let's try sliding a streamer off the bank with a broadside look, because that often draws a strike when nothing else does. I think most anglers start fishing streamers by casting and stripping, keeping it simple at first. And that works. But as time goes by, we realize how much control we truly have over the streamer. And we learn that making it dance, making it swoon or dart, can bring trout charging and crashing into the fly. And those are fun times. But understand this. What we do with the streamer, the motions we give it, and the manipulations we perform with the rod or the line start with the head of the streamer. That's what we're moving, the head of the streamer. I fished for decades without thinking much about this myself. But trout care about the head position of a streamer. They recognize the head, and they feed in a way that is different from nymphs, wets, or dry flies. The other fly styles are too small for a trout to care about where the head is, but there is no doubt that trout are keenly aware of the head of a bait fish. That is their target. And while chasing a moving food form, trout absolutely recognize where the head is and where that food form is going next. So as streamer fishermen, we should consider the head as well, because all of our animations to the fly start there. It's our attachment point to the fly, 
And what we do with the rod or the line hand directly affects the head of the streamer first. It's how we bring the fly to life. So tonight, we'll talk about the head orientation of the streamer in the water, how the streamer moves with the currents or against them, and what looks more natural versus what might look more attractive. We'll also dig into what added weight does to the head of a streamer, how that affects the action, and how that limits or enhances the presentation styles that we have available. All right, this is going to be a good one, and we're all looking forward to it, I think. But uh, first, let me introduce the Trout Pitting crew and have everyone answer just a quick question. All right, let's keep it short. <laughs> I don't need to know too much from you guys. But hey, what's your favorite species to fish besides trout? Austin, ready to go. Austin Dando. Uh, probably smallmouth bass. That's what I grew up fishing for from some of the first species I caught on the fly. What's the biggest smallmouth you ever caught? Uh, right around 20 inches here, actually. You go in inches still. When I talk to smallmouth guys, they talk in pounds. I don't know anything about pounds. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> People ask, and I always answer wrong. Yeah. What did you say? It was 21? No, it was like, it was 20. See, you're exaggerating, 20. Bill. Uh, 20 is about a five-pounder. There you go. Give or take three or four pounds. Yeah, yeah you know. You should see Steve Sawyer. You guys know Steve Sawyer. He fishes Lake Erie. Oh, my yeah. gosh. The, the smallmouth there, they're just unreal. Yeah. They Steve are. Sawyer, our buddy, he's like the OG, one of the OG uh, trout pitting guys. And he, I was texting with him tonight. For like two or three years running, he had the biggest smallmouth in Pennsylvania. Wow, uh, wow. According to the Fish Commission. You know, they kind of keep sure. records of it. You submit them. All right, Bill, what's uh, what's your favorite, bud? Anything different? Musky. Is that right? Yeah. Do they have a scent? Yeah. What do they it's, smell like? Uh, Fear nastiness nastiness i don't know they've got like this they're very very slimy fish and they Mm. have a definitely a different aroma to them than any other fish they're they're uh (laughs) if you think a rainbow trout is slimy and smells Mm. fishy Mm. and like multiply that by five and it's about the musky slime Mm. and smell you get out of it okay so it's still fishy but it's just real strong yeah i've never caught a musky so I don't know. We can work on that if you want. I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> this is not musky bitten. No, I don't know. I, I I know I disappoint Pat, Pat, our buddy Pat Burke, when I say I don't really care about musky, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. Uh, the smallmouth I like. That's my second if you, favorite. If you, yeah, but you've never had a musky eat at your feet. Understood. And I think it would change your opinion. It might. But here's my thing real quick on the muskie. If it takes, you know, it's a fish of 10,000 casts, right? Yeah. Do they say 10,000 or 1,000, is it? <laughs> I, I think they say 10,000. 10, I think they say 10,000 10, 10, If you go out with the right 10, guys, it might not be the case. Maybe. Yeah. But if it's a fish of even 5,000 casts, or let's even say 1,000 casts, what have I learned in 1,000 casts? Well, I finally get that basically like a lucky hit. That's <laughs> what so I always, I tell Pat that too. I'm like... How many hits you get? How many fish? Well, I had I, I didn't catch any, but I got two that's, of them chase a black streamer. I'm like, you don't know anything. You don't well, know that's, anything. That's like saying you don't know anything because you didn't get a deer yet. See, I'm not commenting on the hunting game. Trevor? Right, but... Josh? Yeah. You learn a lot when you're not successful. Hmm. Josh learned a lot last night. I learned a lot last night. Hmm. Oh, yeah, Josh. Go ahead. Yeah, this well, isn't I about just, fish. This isn't about yeah, fish, but you sure, told me yeah. this this morning. Go ahead. Yep. So 
here in Pennsylvania, we're, we're kind of in peak rut right now. Yeah. And, and I had a really good opportunity at a, at what would have been my best buck to date. And he never gave me a clear shot. And I'm not sure I may have made some mistakes in terms of my aggression in, in calling to him and such, but I think I could have done some things differently that maybe would have got the job done, but it didn't happen. And I learned a lot. Hmm. You also learned that he's there. I learned that he's there. That's yeah, big, that's, yeah, that's yeah. big time. That's but, big. You know, we've got, we've got, you know, my hopes are not high if he if I don't if I don't catch a glimpse of him mm. in the next week because our archery season ends on the 18th and uh, then the then the orange army enters the woods and my chances <laughs> rapidly deteriorate. Somebody will pop him, or he'll just yep. or he'll just go nocturnal. Does that happen? Oh yeah, pressure hits and they'll just they'll stop making a, a lot of daytime movement even during the rut well rut's gonna wind down here soon is that right mm-hmm. that shows you i don't know anything about hunting do i guys no yeah in, uh, in terms of in terms of like in terms of like peak rut for this first round now there'll be a second and a third rut that'll be a little bit uh less apparent but in terms of peak rut we've only got maybe five more days or so oh no kidding so the rifle season starts after the Peak rut, as you're calling it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No Although it may be a weird year because rut seemed to begin a little later this year. Mm. The weather like was spawning. a little warmer. Sign was a little bit delayed. I don't know. Interesting. We'll see what it does. Sign, he says. There seems to be a lot of research that says rut is the exact same time every year and it's just activity that we see a difference in. So that meant that mm. rut started at the same time, but it just was, it was likely nocturnal. So the earlier. only thing yeah. that is the same every year is the light conditions. You think that's it? Yeah. I mean, the weather changes. I don't know. Right? I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. I, think it's just, sense. I think it's just hardwired into them. Josh, what's your favorite species besides trout? Largemouth bass. Largemouth. That's what I grew up yeah, fishing. There's a Missouri boy. Yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, Illinois, right? Illinois, yeah. 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 So we have, you know, we have, I think <laughs> maybe we've talked about that before. We had a pond He's in our so backyard. That's where I grew up. Uh, Austin, and I have, Austin and I have done some largemouth fishing together. Mm-hmm. Good bit of it actually back in school. Oh, yeah. Under the yeah. cover of darkness. Under, under the cover of darkness on, oh, on illegal ground. A little golfing. A little, <laughs> little yeah. golf grounds. What are you talking yeah. about? Golf ponds. <laughs> golf ponds. <laughs> we don't speak of such things. It wasn't a country club, was it? Do you remember that time that we had that we had a bunch of naked people show up while we were fishing at night? Hey, now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I used to skinny dip in yeah, what? Trevor, ponds around Trevor State was, College. What are we doing? Turned out to be the uh, club cross country team. Their uh, it was yeah. their uh, annual. We learned ritual. about that later. The club <laughs> club cross country team would go skinny dipping in the in the golf course ponds, and Austin and I happened to be there one night when that was happening. Is this we go fishing? Oh yeah. Oh okay. There's this right. this rumbling sound coming the- from behind the hill, and all of a sudden <laughs> this like stampede of glow in the dark paint and. Well, in the dark sticks just glow sticks came and upon stuff, yeah. us and uh, hid behind some trees. And they started sprinting around and jumping into the pond. And then I remember one time, this one kid started circling around me because he didn't know I was hidden behind the tree. And then he saw me and he flipped out and ran away and jumped into the pond. <laughs> 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 like I was the weird one. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> what are you doing here? What are you doing here with clothes on? <laughs> yeah. Trevor, you haven't gone yet. Trevor Smith, Dr. Wool. The one and only. What's the best species besides trout? I, I'm definitely a smallmouth. Yeah. We're all in smallmouth except for smallmouths. Yeah. 
the Allegheny River is where I grew up fishing. Oh, yeah. And they, they've got a lot of species, but smallmouth were the fun one to catch. Usually Rapalas and Meps. Um, and I just wade fished and fished from the banks. I never had a boat. It was for the rich kids. So I just <laughs> explored the river and caught smallmouth. I would catch an no. occasional walleye. I did catch a small muskie once. I caught a bunch of carp, some channel catfish. Channel catfish and the carp were crazy because there there's some huge ones up there. Usually if I was fishing for channel catfish, I'd make mm. up like some dough with some anise in it or vanilla or something like that. Mm. And, um, those things would almost pull the rod out of your hand. They're huge, 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 huge. Trevor's dirty, isn't he? Right, guys? I grew up fishing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up fishing like that around here. Right? I like that. I, I I would almost say catfish because I like eating catfish. Yeah, I've only ever oh, caught yeah. a c- couple catfish, and I <laughs> the only catfish I've ever eaten have been from the store somewhere. Isn't that sad? You need to take me out, it man. Is. You take take me there's out. Some lakes by you that, there's some lakes by you that are good for it. Mm-hmm. Now, hey, I want to address this because Trevor said, "What'd you say, Rapala or Rapala? Rapala. Which, Rapala. Which is it? Rapala. Rapala. I say and, Rapala." I, uh, Rapala. It's Rapala. Rapala, Rapala no. for sure. Rapala. I'm on Rapala. Rapala mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. If you've ever spoken a language fluently, it's Rapala. <laughs> if you've ever Rapala. spoken a language fluently. <laughs> Which excludes uh, you, Bill. So. That's right. <laughs> so it's come to this. I'm not here for my language. I'm here for my fishing. So uh. so there's a there's gotta be a right and wrong. Some, seriously, somebody needs to look it up. It's gotta be, I mean, come on. Whoever owns Rapala slash Rapala, we don't have to it's look one that or the up. other. It's one or the I other. I'm just saying. I feel like there was a commercial I hear at one point that said Rapala. <laughs> I feel, I, <laughs> can't be. I feel like I, I always grew up here in Rapala. Anyway, uh, maybe by the end of the episode, somebody looks it up and I'll finds find out that the actual Rapala Rapala people say it's one way or the other. Maybe it's somebody's last name. And mine's not Swentiowski, it's Swentowski. There's YouTube videos about this. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to... All right, so <laughs> while you guys get going... I think Bill might be right, actually. All right, so we skipped the listener questions last week to fit in a few more stories. Uh, but let's get back to the questions. Austin, will you read this one, please? All right, so here's a question from Louis Marshall in London, Ontario. Dom and podcast crew, thank you for That's what us. you do. I love listening to each of these episodes because your conversations bring me back to my time in the States. I'm a Canadian resident now, but I was born in Maryland and lived there until I got married. I still fish around here. It's similar, but different too. I do take a lot of cues from the things you write about on the website. I'd like to know if you all use the same confidence flies, no matter where you fish for trout. I have a friend who insists that his flies will work everywhere, but I feel that it's best to check with a local fly shop to learn what fly patterns are specialized to that area. What do you guys think? Thanks again for all the time you put in. Thanks, Lily. I definitely start with my confidence patterns. If I'm in a new area fishing, Mm -hmm. I don't go to the fly shop first and find out what they suggest. But I do think there's a place for local knowledge, and whether that be a friend you have in the area or, sure, the fly shop may be a, you might, have some resources through a local fly shop. But I think what you'll get at a local fly shop is pretty generic knowledge. 
um, that you could probably find online if you wanted to anyway. And I think I don't see that beating out my confidence patterns in terms of my own confidence in them or even in terms of, I mean, my confidence patterns are not very specific mayfly dry flies. You know, they're generalists. And so I feel like they have some universal appeal. It's funny, having worked in a fly shop, Mm. my my recommendations would often just be my confidence flies. So and a lot of a lot of my answers would always be the same because I think a lot of uh trout behave similar. And uh even in, you know, Montana or anywhere out west in Wyoming, our flies from Pennsylvania will produce wonderfully over there because they're so generic often, which we've talked about. If we were really getting in the nitty-gritty details of um, you know, species specific or um, you know, things like that, maybe you, you vary a little bit more, but our style of fishing, I feel like lends itself to a little bit more flexibility in terms of regionality. Yeah. It's, it's, I'd say it's probably different if you're going into a place that has a, a pretty predominant hatch of a very specific insect Good and you point. want to match that pretty well. That's a, that, then it's great to just go in and, and get the flies that are going to match that, that have been tried and true over the years for that hatch in particular. But if you're going and planning on going in and nymphing or streamer fishing or something like that or, or or fishing general hatches, I don't I don't know that it makes any difference at all. I think about eighty percent of the time you can get away with uh, generic patterns, and you may catch eighty percent of the fish. Yeah. But you're gonna hit situations. I don't know. Let's say you showed up at central PA and the cicadas were hatching and you didn't know it and you showed up and you tried to fish hair's ear, you'd be in for, you know, the disappointment of the day not having one of those flies. So like, I think, you know, you're safe most times, but you know, unless there's like a, something major going on, like a hatch or something that you don't know that you're not aware of is where you might miss out. I agree with that. There's a couple flies aren't crap. As long as your flies aren't crap, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, like if your confidence flies are no good, then <laughs> that's true. Why do you have confidence in those anyway? Yeah. Downsize it. Um, well, I mean, most of what a trout eats is you know small and brown slash small olive, brown. <laughs> right? I mean, that's yeah. across mm-hmm. the world. That's if we're talking about nymphs, and that's really what they eat most. And then I think what bait fish is really in your water matters. If you're fishing streamers, I think that matters. That's that's something to understand, you know. Agree. We talked about the white yeah. white river, <laughs> not not too long ago on a couple of podcasts ago. We were talking about the white river. Well, you might want to know what those trout are being fed. Yeah, Bill, where are they getting fed? Point. Rainbow trout, and that was our best pattern when we were there. <laughs> <laughs> right there, you go. So you match the hatch. Yeah, yeah. We tried to nymph, and eh, didn't work out that great. But. And the other thing I'd say is, well, even around here, like green was really good all the way through early fall. And I don't know, it's been, I'm, I'm not quite, we finally got some rain and I'm not sure, but I think green might be done, which it should have been. Well, just thinking about the way it's been in the last many, many years, uh, green is usually done eh, middle of October, but it, it really went all the way through early November. So today and yesterday I was out and eh, not much response on that green. But we'll see. We'll see. But that's something you could easily miss if you were just fishing your confidence flies. No matter where you go, you just always fish, you know, your pheasant tails and your hare's ear kind yeah. of things. There's a reason why the pheasant tail and the hare's ear works everywhere. 
Again, it looks like so many of the nymph patterns that they that they eat, just like an Adams or a, uh, I don't know what, an Elkhair caddis, anything else? What am I missing? A woolly bugger underneath for a streamer. Yeah. So I think that, I think it's a good strategy. And I think I'd much rather fish my confidence flies to start, like Trevor said, than to be trying to develop some confidence with yeah. some guy from a fly shop. Um, that's great stuff. I mean, it could be a fly shop or a local guide or just, you know, a buddy or a friend's friend. You get some local knowledge. I'm absolutely going to try those patterns out, but I'm probably going to start with what I know I fish best in the first place. Yeah. Whether it's after a fishing trip or at a backyard fire, you can bet the Trout Bitten crew has a case of New Trail Broken Heels along with us. It's honestly our favorite beer. This hazy IPA is smooth and full-bodied. Hand-selected citra hops lead to notes of bright clementine and juicy ruby red grapefruit. Broken Heels is a keeper. New Trail Beer is proudly brewed in Williamsport, Pennsylvania and delivered cold to your favorite craft beer retailer every week. At New Trail, it's not about being the best angler. It's about getting out there. So enjoy nature's moments and reward yourself for a day well fished with New Trail Broken Heels. It's Trout Bitten's favorite beer. Precision Fly and Tackle is a family-owned business with a passion for the outdoors and a sense of adventure. They are anglers who enjoy every moment spent on the water with family and friends. Precision Fly and Tackle carries the widest selection of Euro rods, reels, lines, leaders, flies, and accessories. From the beginner to the advanced angler, Precision Fly and Tackle can outfit every angler, no matter the budget. Visit them online at precisionflyandtackle.com. Then use code TROUTBITTEN10, that's the number 10, for 10% off your order. Gear up with Precision Fly and Tackle for your next adventure. Hey, let's do one more question. Josh, will you read this one? This question comes from James Whittle through Instagram. Mm -hmm. Guys, I know you've talked about being efficient on the water. I like the whole versatility concept, Mm -hmm. but how much gear do you need to make all that happen? Do I really want to carry all of that while I'm waiting? It seems like a little too much. I still think you can be versatile and not carry a lot of gear. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get tied up in the, I have to have all these things. Think about versatility as a strategy and how you're casting, how you're presenting the flies. Mm, Nice. I don't know. Let's say I want to be versatile and I want to nymph fish. And so I can nymph fish with an indicator or I can tight line. The indicators, you know, just a small little plastic thing you're carrying along. And so it's not a, a big thing to carry along, but it can make a big difference in how you're presenting the fly yeah. and be versatile. Yeah, I think you, you can you can fit a ton of versatility into a small package. Like mm. as long as you've got what you need to fish heavy and to fish light. Just the <laughs> next <girl. laughs> <That's> what she <laughs> said. <laughs> What's that? What happened? I missed Get that. out of here. Get out of here. Is that what Kelsey saw? Oh, oh, no. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> All right, you get out of here. You get out of here. Uh, that took a that, that took a wrong turn. It took a second. Sorry. I saw I saw like your eyes, Austin. I'm like, wait, <laughs> hold on. What happened? <laughs> what did I just say? What did I just say? You get out of here. <laughs> you get, okay. You the, All right. Sorry, so, so read that back. So as long as I think as long as you've got what it takes to present something large or small to present <laughs> something. <laughs> Heavy or light. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Oh. You guys. Every man it's is more different. how you use it. 
Not Did your mama's been telling yeah. stories. <laughs> <laughs> Call my wife in here to vouch for me. <laughs> Four kids. I think you got all the vouching you need. That's true. Yeah. Swimmers, but that has nothing to do with size. <clears throat> anyway. Anybody else have a good answer to this question? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, Go. I think this is, this is where the monorig shines is people that like us all who have desired to fish yeah. and meet trout on their level mm-hmm. and not make them meet you in the technique that you want to choose and yet want to do it without carrying three rods, right? I right, mean, right. We can, you can carry three or four different leaders even, and yeah. you know whether that be lightness leader, you can carry dry fly leader and cast it on a mono rig at short distance to mid distance. And and you can, I mean, I think for all of us, huge part of the reason we fish the mono rig is that we've found it to be elegant in its simplicity and yet Mm. effective in its, um, in its application. Right. So, I mean, I think your question is great, but it's, it's also exactly what we're doing. We are minimizing gear Mm. while maximizing the versatility. Well, Josh and I just filmed a video that focuses on the tight line advantage to very, uh, four different styles. Tight line nymphing, tight line to the streamer, tight line to the indicator, and tight line to dry dropper. We all do this with one leader. Hmm. And it's not a compromise. It's not like, oh, we're just trying to make one leader kind of do a bunch. No, it's, there is no compromise. It's, there's no downside to it. And we use this one leader that does a lot of different things just by changing minimal things. And Bill, you said something. Your first answer kind of stuck out to me there. That just because we're being versatile doesn't mean that we're carrying a lot of gear. And I'm with Trevor there. Uh, I'm not carrying more than one rod on the on the river. And uh, I know. I mean, I acknowledge I probably have a little more gear than the average person, probably more than all of you. Um, I like a lot of stuff in my vest. But I still consider myself a minimalist. I really do. Um, and I like to keep things as simple as possible. And every time that my vest gets completely wet from a drenching rain, you know, I got to dry it all out. And every time I put all that stuff on the dining room table with a towel underneath it, I look at it and I go, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't know how that made it into my vest. And that's staying out of there. And I really do. And I carry one nymph box, one streamer box, well, two smaller dry fly boxes and there's wet flies in my streamer in my nymph box so i don't have that many flies i have i have more leaders than anything and there's different kinds of weight configurations if i'm fishing underneath that matters to me so i'm going to combine question one and question two oh cool and say most times that i fish starting now is i know there's not going to be a lot of dry fly activity for the most part Mm -hmm. i will fish out of a lanyard and maybe have 30 or 40 confidence flies with me Mm. and I can just fish them different ways. I have my confidence flies that I need, but then I'm also not weighted down by things, you know, all the other gear. Sometimes I find myself when I do bring more gear, I start to run through other ideas of like, well, maybe I should switch. And then I spend half of the morning switching out different routines instead of just focusing on presentation and trying to change the way I'm doing things. That's fair. Just fish what you have on and fish it better. Yeah. Especially this time of year as it starts to get real cold. I don't want to change stuff as much. Yeah. So I end up I end up making less changes for sure. 
Well, yeah. And as the seasons get more, let's say, extreme, you know what they're going to eat. And that happens in the summertime. And that happens as we approach wintertime and then all through the winter. So it does simplify things. All right. That's good stuff. Thank you for those questions, everybody. Keep them coming. And I think real soon we're going to do a full podcast of just listener questions and uh, sort of free form, see where it goes. We'll probably only get through four of them. We we might get through four of them. (laughs) Yeah. And then we'll be done. (laughs) That's fair. All right. So let's get to our topic, though, tonight and start thinking about why the streamer head position is the key to a good presentation. Okay. I'm thinking. You think about it, Bill. Willie. I mean, I think this is true. Unless you're dead drifting it, right? The head position of the of the streamer really matters. If you're letting the current carry the streamer along and tumble downstream without tension, then you're not going to be in control of or even care about that head position if you're dead drifting your streamer. But I don't think we do that very much. But let me point this out. I think one of the reasons everyone loves streamer fishing is because we spend so much time dead drifting bugs because that's what trout eat. The, the, the streamer fishing is a relief. It's fun. It's different, you know? And it just opens up things and allows us to start moving our fly. And sometimes we can even see it. We can see the effects of our our line hand and our rod hand. And that's just a lot of fun. Right, guys? Hey, do you guys dead drift your streamers very much? Start with that. I don't dead drift them. I pause them frequently Mm -hmm. and long. Yeah. But I don't necessarily dead drift them. That's a good point. If you cast it upstream and it's coming back to you, it's not necessarily a dead drift, right? I mean, we work right. all the time on getting perfect dead drifts with a nymph and a dry fly, and that's very difficult. The perfect dead drift is unaltered by the current almost at all. Yeah, and, it's um, pretty rare that I don't animate a little right? bit, you know, and a lot of one of my favorite presentations for a streamer is casting upstream and letting it achieve its position in the strike zone, but then animating it slightly as it mm. drifts back towards me but yeah. it's still it's not a true dead drift you know it's i'm i am twitching the head or kind of manipulating mm-hmm. it out of the current seam that it started in that's nice maybe the closest thing i think i come to doing it is with a with a jig head and where i'm trying to keep it in one seam and one speed sure sure and I think let's talk about the weights a little and the, how we weight the streamers and how that changes the head position. Let me ask you this, Bill. When you are doing what you just described, are you aware of the head position of the head of the streamer? Do you think about that? Not frequently mm-hmm. do I think about it. I'm more thinking about the body position. And, Tell me. But I guess that correlates to, the, to where the head is pointed. Mm. I almost think of like if I if I know where a fish is sitting or I think I know where a fish is sitting, whether it's sure. on structure or near structure, mm-hmm. my first thought is to just slow the fly down in that area and then change the head position or the orientation of the fly. Mm-hmm. And maybe because, you know, if, if a fish is dying, it's going to kick and it's going to kind of like roll mm-hmm. and it's going to kind of when you change the head position and it pauses it's almost like the head position gets changed. It's hanging there. It looks like the fish is kind of dying nice. and almost in free fall. And I feel like that's what will often trigger a strike. Yeah. And so if you can kind of, if you can plan that around structure, I think that's often very 
predictable to get a fish to eat it. Yeah, I was going to say something pretty similar. Like, I have a very small streamer that's a major, like, I go to it all the time. One of my favorite ways of fishing it is to absolutely start with a very dead drift style approach where I'm casting up and I'm, I mean, like, like we've talked about before, a couple rod lengths up and one over, you know, like mm-hmm. a very, very nymph-like approach. And then I'm going to nymph it down and, and sort of exactly like what Bill was talking about. As soon as it gets near where the, I think the fish are, and usually that's structure, usually that's a rock or something. Yeah. That's when I give it just a little bit of life. And all that, and he, you kind of mentioned it, you use different words, but like the stall that happens as soon mm-hmm. as you give tension to it in any direction other than just letting it dead drift. And so it's almost like I'm letting it have a supernatural look with nothing distracting about it at all. And as soon as it gets to where I think this is where it, there should be a take, this is where there should be a fish, I'm going to give it enough animation just to get it to stall out for a second mm. or change direction, something to, to try to initiate a response nice. and to give it that, that bait fish look. And then a lot of times that's like you're doing it where you think the fish is. And so you're already mm. upping your chances there. And it works really well. I kind of do something a little opposite. I'll, I'll actively fish it. We talk about casting far up ahead and, and retrieving the fly till it's sort of close to ourselves. I'll mm-hmm. actively fish that fly and change seams and change uh, speeds and depths until mm-hmm. it gets within a, like a, a regular tight line distance. And then I'll remove all the slack off the water. I'll go take to that fly and then I'll kill it and uh, and kind of jig it through and, and slightly twitch it through those areas. Uh, I don't let the, oftentimes, I don't let the fly swing very far down below me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like when they drag up towards the surface. I don't really like to see the streamer at all, actually. So once it gets just below me, I pick it up and recast and, and keep moving upstream. Yeah, that that is a different sort of look. Animating it and then pausing it around the structure. Hmm. Interesting. You know what, you, you mentioned something that you don't like the way it kind of, as it tails out, as it swings down below you, it kind of comes mm-hmm. up to the surface mm-hmm. very naturally just because of the amount of tension that's on it. Right. One of the things that, maybe not if it's right below you, but as it's starting to swing and as it's kind of coming up through the water column, mm. I like to add a bunch of slack in that moment and mm. get it to sort of, it's like slowly rising, rising, rising. And then and you, again, it's just doing that thing where you just force it to stall because mm. all of a sudden the the current can take it and it can sink again. And yeah. then on as soon as you gain contact again, that's been that's been a hot spot for me. And its head would I be like facing that. upstream. It would be transitioning from a downstream exactly. approach to an upstream. Do you do that night too? Exactly. That sounds like a night thing. It, yeah, I'm saying no. I have I have thrown in slack like on right. on in situations like that at night. I'm not it's sure different. that it's been quite yeah not as not much, sure, or, much as, you know yeah or not as intentional right there like good point at that. What we're talking about is giving the trout a chance to eat it. I think that's what we're all kind of saying. We just might do it at different points in the presentation. Of course, it's all situational. That's what I like to think is giving the trout a chance to eat it. We talk about trying to get trout to be predators and come chase it. That's great. When they're in that mood, that's fantastic. That There might be nothing more fun. But I like to give them a chance to eat it, to take it to them, to make it an easy meal, to make it look like it's dying or vulnerable. How many bait fish do trout see during a day just one day i don't know thousands <laughs> i don't know maybe thousands <laughs> but at least 50 or 100 right it depends on where they're sitting definitely depends on where they're sitting but they're not eating all of them and i think they uh they want to clean up the system if they see something that like josh says is holding its head 
in the current and then all of a sudden it dies and just starts to go down. Well, you know, hopefully a big old trout just takes his opportunity right there. Dom, you read about something. I feel like it was in one of your night articles about the dead drift or death drift. Death drift. How you fished the rogue, kind of that original just subsurface pattern. And that's a technique that I've had success with in the daytime as well. Nice. Um, Yeah. Particularly in muddier, I've used that technique in muddier water. Right. um, Around structure, around um, close to the bank. Um, And I think, I mean, the way at least I've employed it, I don't know if it's exactly how you do it, but casting upstream and then yeah. having so almost a neutrally buoyant fly, but just kind of letting it sink just below and then kind of twitching it back up and kind mm-hmm. of that same concept that Josh is talking about of a fish that's sort of barely holding on to its ability to establish itself in the current, trying its mm-hmm. best and then kind of failing, trying and then failing in just a position of vulnerability. That's neat. Um, I've I've felt the same, or I've mm-hmm. kind of found the same thing. It works for me at night, and then it works for me best when the water is colored up. Yeah. I can't seem to get it going under, uh, I don't know, regular water conditions. Mm. But, no, I use that death drift when it is muddy or really yeah. dirty. And, boy, the hits on that are just crushing, right? Yep. So, for you're... me, I'm always thinking yeah. about that. I'm always looking at that head position. And all the animations that I do, what I'm doing really is manipulating the head of the fly. And even, Bill, as you were talking about, you know, what you're going to do with the fly to the body of the fly, I mean, I think it starts with the head and which way the head is going to go. For sure. And you guys were talking about your stinky bass and even, like, musky (laughs) and stuff. And one thing I've noticed, like, streamer fishing for those different species, bass and pike and musky it's almost like their mouth can be a vacuum if they want it to be like they open Mm. it and they flare their gills and it and they will suck the prey in yeah it does but i've never seen a trout do that and so the trout seem to always strike Hmm. the bait fish whether it be strike it and then spin it around and then eat it head first because if they're eating a sculpin they can't eat it backwards or like the sculpin Mm -hmm. will flare its gills and you know, they won't be able to swallow the fish. And so to be able to swallow that sculpin to your point, like the head has to be positioned going down into the, like the, the mouth of the sculpin has to be the first thing entering the the trout's mouth to be able to eat it safely. Yeah. If that bait fish is, I'm going to say two inches, maybe two and a half inches or better. That seems to be uh, the size where they really will eat the head first. And I kind of understood that first from Gallup. And Gallup says, like, they always eat the head first. And they certainly don't always eat the head first. On those bigger food forums, they they sure seem to. And you can kind of see it. And I know it's like, especially from a boat, we can see a lot. But even then, things happen so fast, you can hardly tell. You're like, oh, man, he hit it, but he didn't eat it. Bill, you make an excellent point there. Trout are different. They don't have that big, wide mouth of a large mouth bass boy not even like a small mouth bass they kind of attack differently than a bass they don't just let all that yeah yeah that's neat that's a good point for over a decade smith creek has provided innovative high quality fly fishing accessories designed to put your gear in easy reach free up your hands and keep our waters clean this november smith creek is releasing two new products just in time for the holidays 
Check their website to see the new tippet holder. Each unit is individually machined from high-quality billet aluminum and anodized in one of two eye-catching colors. They hold up to five tippet spools with a patented spring-loaded plunger design that is easy to load and keeps your spools right where you need them. All Smith Creek products are built guide tough and backed by solid customer service. To learn more about Smith Creek products, visit their website at smithcreek.co. As fly anglers and tires, we understand the value of having the right tool for the job. AvidMax.com offers over 20,000 products and the knowledge to help find the right tools for your job, whether that be at the tying bench or on the water. Listeners of the Trout Pitten Podcast receive a discount at AvidMax.com. Enter the code TROUT10, that's the number 10, at checkout to save 10% on your order. Orders over $25 ship for free, so you can put more gas in your tank or beer in your cooler. For all things fly fishing and tying, elevate your game with AvidMax. We were talking about like stalling the fly and so on. And so a lot of times I may carry three or four streamers, but they're all weighted differently because depending on the time of year and depending on the amount of current and, you know, speed that's out there as far as like the height of the river, Mm -hmm. I feel like that to me always matters more than necessarily the, the size or the color. Like I want something that I can, when I stall it out, I don't want it to just directly drop to the bottom most days. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, well, how we incorporate weight. And I mean, if you're fishing under the water, we, we talked about this a few podcasts ago. When As soon as you go under the water, you're going to need weight. And where's that weight going to be? It could be in a split shot, you know, 10 inches above the streamer, 20 inches above the streamer, I don't know. Or it could be directly in the streamer itself. And what you're saying there, Bill, is like you vary things day to day. You're finding success in where that weight is, how much weight there is. And then because that weight very much dictates how you can move the fly and what the yeah. fly wants to do in, in and of itself. Yeah, I found myself uh, about two or three falls ago. Yeah. I spent the entire day throwing streamers, and I think I caught like two fish, three fish. Mm, you stuck with and, it, though. And I stuck with it because I had so many fish follow. I mean, mm. like 50 to 70 fish mm. like would follow and look at it, and I was like, I've gone, I'm going to figure them out, and yeah. it never happened. There is interest. But like the the next day i was like okay well yesterday i fished a heavy like i fished kind of like the headbanger type fly and i was like okay i need to take a minute and think about like what was i doing and yeah. the river was very low and to fish that headbanger and heavier fly i had to strip it very fast to keep yeah. it yeah off the bottom and so i didn't have the ability to pause it because if i paused it it would just immediately sink and hang up on the bottom yeah and so like the next day I was like, okay, I'm going to go out, I'm going to fish the same style of fly, but I'm going to fish it a much lighter version of it mm-hmm. and give me the ability to stall it. And like that next day I had better success. And Did so yeah. I was like, okay, now I know, and it, you know, it could have been that the pressure changed, the fish were yeah. eating better that day. But like <laughs> in my head, thing. I was like, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I, went back to camp and sat there and sat in my sorrow and had a few beers and thought, what did I do wrong? Or what can I do better the next day? Sure. Cause 50 or 70 hits is really going to frustrate you when you only get right. two hookups yeah. and those two hookups are probably almost, they feel like an accident, right? You know, right. you didn't really figure something out. 
Bill, you raise a good point about weight and conditions regarding uh, retrieves and presentations that are available to you based on the weight of the flyer fishing. And it's important to remember yeah. that you know, weight is all, it's all has to do with the context that it's based in. So you could be fishing a headbanger fly and be in a boat and the river is ripping and that fly that used to drop to the bottom really fast yesterday in that low clear water mm. doesn't do that anymore. And so when we talk about how heavy things are, it's not necessarily like this thing's really heavy. This thing's not very heavy. It all has to do with yeah, the, yeah. you know, the hard flow or the depth that you're trying to reach. So Bill, what you mm. did there of, of uh, you know, manipulating the weight of your fly or even the build of the, uh, the build of the fly is a really good idea. I like that a lot. And to your point, like you start, I thought you were going to say this, but uh, sometimes it comes down to the aerodynamics of your fly because mm, like yeah sure i do know right. that that head ba- that headbanger sculpin at some point when the water gets high it doesn't have enough weight to sink and sure. it almost it's not mm-hmm. as aerodynamic and it does have kind of a little bit of a hover mm-hmm. yeah like it's got some head resistance it there a little that. bit of a hover yeah versus yeah. if you put like a 4.5 millimeter tungsten bead on there it just mm-hmm. it'll go it'll cut straight to the current where that will just kind mm-hmm. of that's interesting like, mm-hmm. uh, ride the waves so to speak Right. Or ride the seam. That's not a bad description at all. That's exactly, I think, what that it's headbanger. Like yeah, and many other flies that have those kind of materials will do. It's almost, it rides the wave. And if the wave is heavy enough, yeah, it doesn't really want to sink. But if you take, I don't know, a very streamlined fly, like we use a craft for jig a lot, right? Or craft for a streamer. Um, if I put that on a jig, a jig hook, it could be a bead or it could be a lead ball jig, that craft for hardly has any resistance and that fly will just cut through the seam cut through the depth in a way that that headbanger never will it could be the equal weight hell it could be twice the amount of weight on that headbanger and the yeah. craft for jig will still cut yeah, sure way faster than the headbanger it doesn't ride the Great wave point. as you say yep yeah it's a neat thing and there's a lot of different materials that affect like some soak in the water. Like mm-hmm. there's so many different ways, like a woolly bugger. And like most streamers are tied with like hackle bodies and mm-hmm. those hackle bodies are the same thing. They don't necessarily just immediately sink to the bottom. Mm-hmm. They have resistance. Yeah, exactly. Another thing about the jig hooks. And so I'll tie again, this, I'll go back to this craft for jig. Sometimes we call it a CF streamer because CF sounds more sophisticated than craft fur. Anyway, <laughs> that's what matters. <laughs> that's what matters. You have to sound elitist. Acronyms. That's what we're all about. We're going for elitism. <laughs> yep. Yeah, <and> acronyms. <laughs> anyway, I tie it in three different versions. And let's just say that let's compare the actual jig head, the ball jig version. That guy, the fly will rock head down, head up. And mm-hmm. I will use that when, when I absolutely do want to jig it. I will give the fly some grace to fall, and once I get to the bottom, I'll jig it back up. Then the head comes up, and here I am to the head position again, right? The head is literally coming up, following to my rod tip, and now I drop it. So a jig fly tied like that on this craft fur jig will go up and down, and up, and the head really rocks up Mm -hmm. and down. Yeah. But if I put the same design of fly and simply change the weight, like you were saying, Bill, simply change where the weight is positioned. I, I could use the same amount of weight, but if it's not a jig hook and it is, and that weight is not positioned in that, well, jig position, that fly, absolutely, it'll go a little bit head down 
it kind of goes head down. But it won't rock as it, hard. There you go. It doesn't. And that's, so. I'll use that to affect. Day to day, I might want a different thing to happen. Bill? So the jigs. And so I, I started fishing them last year. And so yeah. I had a couple of days that, you know, that I switched to the, like a small size six single, single hook jig. Yeah. And had some really good success. But what I've, and I'm curious to know if you guys have the same thing is um, almost all of my hits fishing jig hooks are on the fall. Oh, yeah. I rarely ever catch a fish when I'm like on the jig back up or even like the peak of the, mm. you know, you, you mm-hmm. jigged it up to the to the utmost point and then you're letting it fall again. Mm-hmm. Almost all of those eats seem to be on the fall. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same concept sort of as like the pause or the super pause you talk about. Mm. Even when if I fished a non-jigged fly, if we're kind of twitching it back to ourselves and we pause it or kill it out, that's when I get most of my eats. Not necessarily mm-hmm. when I'm being the most aggressive or brash. Yeah. I, mm. I think a big part of that is probably just because it, it is the most natural movement, mm. right? I mean, because we're not really feeling the weight of that current because we have a rod and a line in between us. And when it actually switches and that head turns and it drops, it's doing what is completely natural for anything with resistance to do in that current. And so it's the most natural look that we can possibly get is just when it's falling. And I also I think know. as we've, yeah, no, I think you're right. A hundred percent. And I think it, the simple explanation is also brown trout are efficient creatures who don't want to yeah. expend extra effort when possible. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, when my three-year-old is running around my house like crazy and I, I'm trying to catch him, I don't chase him all around the house. I wait till he stops and I grab him, you know. Because yeah. you're educated. Because I'm educated. But because, so you know, I, I, there's, I don't want to <laughs> throw my back out <laughs> reaching for my three-year-old, chasing him around the house. But well, I, think, yeah. I think there's some answers. And the fish will, the fish are animals just like you know you and i see in the in the whitetail woods deer will do any random thing on any given day and sometimes it doesn't make sense but for the majority of their time and i think for brown trout for that 80 percent of their time they're trying to be efficient and they're trying to save energy and so they Mm. will take that fly at its most vulnerable point when they Mm. can expend the least amount of energy to do it and yeah sure they'll chase it once in a while right yeah at its most vulnerable yeah. And the bigger fish are the smarter fish and they're probably going to exude the least amount of energy. Yeah. 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 I think so too. And whereas I think many anglers these days think like, oh, well, those big fish, they're the ones that are going to get up and chase and be predators. Well, okay. On a good day. <laughs> On kind yeah. of an exceptional day. Sure. But I'm with you, Bill. I think the bigger fish are the ones that are going, you know what? I'm not chasing that around. You bring it like to Trevor. me. They're like Trevor. <laughs> I'm not chasing my three-year-old. I'm waiting for my moment of opportunity, and then I'm going to get them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so, too. And yeah. Austin, you're saying that on the jig, when it's falling, okay, when you're using a jig presentation, when it's falling, that's the vulnerable point. Yeah. Yep. They always eat, almost always, eat on the paws, or if you're stripping in, in between strips, you know, on a jig, it's as it's falling. Somewhat predictable, too, to the trout, mm-hmm. especially if they've watched it for one or two jigs and they know the next motion coming and they've kind of yeah. seen that that's the time yeah. to strike, then they'll go ahead and do that. 
That's neat. That's a good point. You talk about the timing or the rhythm of things, mm-hmm. of a presentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just not <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. That is pretty good. I've found that to be especially important here in lower and clearer water like we've had in the fall. The more erratic I made things, nah, yeah, the fewer right. fish I was catching. I was actually spooking fish on erratic presentations. Mm. The more predictable I made it, nice. more rhythmic, let's say, yeah, they were eating it, well, in between strips, in between jerks and twitches and whatever, in between animations. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. But that's neat. I, I don't know if I thought about that too much, but I like that. Do you guys think that there is any difference in just how natural it looks when we are when we are manipulating the movement and when we're just letting it fall. Because like I mentioned a second ago, like who's to say that us giving a little bit of action looks like what it what a what a bait fish looks like when it exerts some energy. But when when that bait fish lets itself go limp, the natural thing is for it to just stall out and and either sink or just hang there in the water depending on the density of the the fly that we're fishing. Wouldn't it make most sense that that is the most natural of a presentation that you're going to get is is when you stop manipulating it for a second yeah am i thinking about that wrong no i think i think you're thinking about it it's all it's like i think it's a combination of what you're saying is it's naturally vulnerable at that point Mm -hmm. yeah like like a bait fish is gonna look the same way where you know if you kind of if you strip and then you let it pause and you let the current kind of catch your fly mm, yeah. and, and it, the, the current is going to manipulate your fly just as if it would manipulate a bait fish. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We want to allow that to happen. Yeah. Right. Now we say bait fish, but I mean, sculpins, for example, don't have an air bladder. So they kind of go head down and then they might move around and then they go head down again. And I mean, I, Sometimes, sometimes I'll think I'm going to try to look like a sculpin. <laughs> and I think it matters. And a crayfish moves quite a bit differently than a sculpin. And boy, a black-nosed dace, for example, which we have plenty around here, they're much more, I don't know, athletic than a, than a sculpin. And there are days, there are times where I'm like thinking, all right, I'm going to try to look like a black-nosed dace. I, honestly, I think trout eat a lot fewer black-nosed dace than they do crayfish. I think crayfish are the slowest and possibly the easiest to capture. I think sculpins maybe maybe next in in line there. Most predictable yeah. in their behaviors and yet mm-hmm. a nice big protein form for them. Yeah. Do you think this like I don't fish a lot of crayfish streamers. I think they almost all look like crayfish to be honest. But I think like the jig streamers, I think what you do with it. I think looks a lot like the crayfish. Yeah. Then, like, if you're swimming something, you know, at a foot and a half under the surface. Um, We see a lot of crayfish at night, right, guys? I mean, you throw your headlamp on when you're relocating, and that's when I really learned what uh, what crayfish really do. And, yeah, they'll, they'll rise and fall, rise and fall like a jig, but not extreme either, I would say. But they do a lot of almost swimming. They, they can swim, I'm going to say, like five to six feet in one pulse. And then wow. they kind of drop and get their energy and, and do it again. I don't know. I would say almost every streamer in my box, I feel like I can get it to look like a crayfish and then maybe look like a sculpin. And if I move it the right way, I think it can look like a black-nosed dace. I think it's how we move it. We said that earlier. It's, it's, it's the yeah. way we move the fly that, that sells it. And I think it pays to take the time to observe those different bait fish. And, you know, for yeah. guys listening from around the country, you know, look into the, the bait fish that are 
living in your rivers. Crayfish are probably pretty ubiquitous for most of us, but if you can at least study the types of life forms living in your stream and try to mimic them, there's definitely some success to be had there. For sure. Let me ask you this, guys. What head position, as you're casting, for me, I'm always thinking about that head position because that dictates how the fly is going to swim. Mm-hmm. What head position, you know, sells most for you? What what puts the most fish in the net? So if I'm throwing it upstream, mm-hmm. I would think the most time I frequently get the fish to eat it is if I have the head. So usually it's strip it off the bank and then mm-hmm. I then I flip it and the head is the head is positioned upstream and so the the body of the fly is kind of showing a bigger profile towards the fish. Now you've mentioned that before, Bill. You you're are you talking about a bigger profile to fish looking up or a bigger profile to fish approaching it? Right. We did cover this Look, before. Approaching it. Yeah. Let's say it's the bank and there's a rock on the bank. I would throw, let's say, at a forty five above the rock and then in front of the rock, I'm stripping it full profile. So the head is pointed at me. It, mm-hmm. There's a, you know, the, 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 the top part of the rock, the head is pointed at me. And then when it comes to the other side of the rock, I'm going to switch it and give that head position hmm. now to point upstream. Hmm. And then the, the front side of the rock gets the, the broad side of the fly, so to speak. So you're talking about a head flip, really. And we've talked yeah. about this a bit. And I have a technique that I call a head flip. You're starting with the head. It, for me, it's as simple as this. Where is the head facing? It's in what you're talking about is you're starting casting up and across and it's coming. You said the, then the streamer is coming back to you. So the head is literally faced downstream and across 45 degrees, let's say downstream and across. And then you're flipping it around that structure. to maybe it'll be upstream and across or just, just flat across. Right. Am I right about that? It may not necessarily be, I guess if your streamer had eyes, where is it looking? Hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. If it, and so if it, was, the head if it had a flashlight out of the front of its nose, it, it, where is your where's your flashlight pointing? My most productive is when the flashlight is pointing upstream. No, okay. it's not. We're not on the same yeah. page. <laughs> like where it's where your fly is like swim upstream for a moment. For a moment, yes, for a moment. Ah, though. And like, then I'm not saying like it's permanently staying mm-hmm. there, right? I guess, like, it's, oh, no, it's hard to explain. That. It's the head flip. Yeah. Yeah, we but acknowledge it's, it's, that. Like, the head flip's a yeah. great oh intermediary. It's a great trigger. And then you flip it back a lot of times. But if you were, yeah. if you're saying, like, your most productive uh, head position is up and across, looking up and across, then you'd be swinging flies the whole time. Yeah, they'd all be below you. I guess what I'm saying is most of my eats come on the on the flip where the yeah. so like the the eyes are pointed at me, they're coming, and then I'm I'm rotating the fly, mm-hmm. and so the the eyes are facing upstream mm-hmm. for a moment. And at that point, I feel like I get like seventy to eighty percent of my strikes when you change that profile yeah. right there. So like before that, too, that double like, flip, like, right, right, right. No, yeah. I'm with you. Right. That to me is my, that's my best trigger. It's what we call a head flip. So once again, we're talking about, I like this, the eyes, the headlight there. That's good, Trevor. Yeah. Right? So it's mm-hmm. faced, the eyes are faced down and across. They're looking down and across, literally. And maybe around structure, you, you flip the head and whether if you're on a tight line, you can just take the rod over upstream or you could mend with, if you're doing a different system and you somehow get that head now to face so it's looking upstream and maybe up and across and i'm with you bill that's that's a great trigger for me 
I do a double flip, like Josh just said. If that, I'll often flip it and then flip it right back. That that's my number one trigger is that head flip. And once again, it's a manipulation of the head position, which once again I think looks like that vulnerable state. It's like the, yeah. the streamer is trying to do something. This bait fish that we're trying to imitate is maybe trying to right itself in the current. And then it doesn't have the energy. It just looks available to the trout all of a sudden. If it's structure that I know that I have confidence in a fish being at, yeah. when I flip it, like when, when I am when I do that head flip, I'm pausing it sometimes for up to like three or four seconds. Sure. Like I'm just, I'm letting it sit there and being like, hey, I'm an easy meal. Come eat me. Love it. Let me ask you guys this. When it flips, on average, are you guys seeing this fly? Is it you know eight inches below the surface, and when you flip it, it's it rides up towards the surface? Or are you flipping it and able to stay like riding towards the bottom? Because I don't I don't do well on that retrieve, and I always feel like it's because when I force the flip, it it makes the fly rise up off the bottom and and looked weird, and then I have to manually flip it back, and it just never feels smooth enough to to feel productive to me. I'm probably a foot to two feet under the surface and I'm fishing visual visual flies that I can see. Mm-hmm. So when you flip it, does it rise up significantly or does it stay where it's at in the current? Depends on the speed yeah. of the current you can, and, the he- and the weight of the fly. You can manipulate it. Yeah. Say a walking speed. I don't see it rise up. I think it's more of like it stays in position of where it was yeah. at. I feel like we're in control of that, especially on the monorig. Yeah, now, if you have exactly. a line on yep. the water, then you're very much at the mercy of what that line is going to do. And you can only mend and control all of that so much. Josh, you were going to say something. Well, uh, Bill kind of covered it. It's, uh, I'm, I'm generally fishing more visible flies. And I know we've talked about this before, Austin. Like mm-hmm. you, you really do like to keep it pretty low and pretty slow in general, right? And so that, that changes things a little mm-hmm. bit because, I mean, yeah. that means that you're dealing with a little bit more head weight or, or something like that. But I think it's also just in the timing. Like if, yeah, if you, if you just like pull it and you keep tension that whole time on that head flip, then yeah, Mm. the head's going to come up and it's going to rise up and through the water column. But if you give it slack, lift your rod up and over and then pull it in the opposite direction, it's not going to rise up. It just changes directions and stalls. And so it's all just about, it's it's about manipulating that slack with it. It makes sense. You don't want to keep tension on the fly the entire time through that head flip. Because if you do that, it will rise up through the water column. Yeah, you're almost waiting for the fly to catch up with mm, what yeah. point. you've done with the rod tip. Yeah. So we talk a lot. Well, I mean, what we're trying to do here is really think about the head position of the streamer. And like Bill, you kind of threw me for a loop there in what you're saying. But now I think we're all on the same page. You're talking about manipulating that head position through the drift. The way that, I mean, I kind of fish streamers like everybody else. I learned to have my head position faced up. Or up and across, because I was swinging streamers. Swinging, to me, is where you're using the current. The current's pulling against your fly. And so, uh, Trevor's awesome. You know, where are the eyes looking, or where's the if it had a flashlight on its head, it would be faced up and across. Anyway, so I'd swing flies. And then I read Gallup's book, and that changed everything. I think it's 2002, somewhere around there. Gallup's uh, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout. And like a lot of people, that really changed the way that I looked at streamers. And I started saying, okay, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to learn this jerk strip. His idea, and this is fair to say, this is it. His idea is to hit the banks, hit the structure. Let's just say the bank, put it on the bank, you know, cast across or slightly up, up and across, put it on the bank. That head position is immediately going to face either across or let's say 
45 degrees down and across, counter really to the swinging streamers thing, which was so common before. And then he says, you know, if it's a bait fish, if we're really trying to look like a bait fish that is escaping or fleeing and we're trying to elicit that predatory instinct of those trout that are hanging on the bank, then we want to look like a bait fish that is going to escape. And when a bait fish is going to escape, it's not going to fight the current. It's not going to go up and across and into the current. It's going to use the current to its advantage like any any creature and, you know, how do I say it? Like, like anything. In like nature. Anything in nature. Thank you. Um, it's going to use the current to its advantage, and it's going to go downstream or down and across. And the whole jerk strip concept, which is a gallop, I don't know, that's where I learned it. The jerk strip is to pulse it from that bank, from the structure, down and across, and it'll go, and it'll pause, and it'll go, and it'll pause, and it'll go, and it'll pause. But as it's going, it's almost always going down and across. And I had really tremendous success with that at first. I get a lot more eats when that head is faced down and across. Now, to, I say tremendous. It depends. Let's, let's back that off a little bit. It depends on, you know, so many things, but especially the size of the streamer and whatnot. You can't ask too much of the trout. It depends on how fast, how erratic, too, you're moving it, how jerky everything is, how smooth it is, whatever, how fast you're moving it. There are a lot more elements. But that down and across head position is what gets me the most eats. And then I'll flip it, like you said, Bill. I do think it looks the most natural, too. For a bait fish, I think that is trying to escape. That's very fair. And maybe a bait fish that's even just trying to relocate out into the center. So do you guys think, now we're talking about head position, like, do you guys think, have you had any better or worse success with, like, different materials for the head of your flies? Like, do you think that matters at all? Sure. It, it, I think, yeah. That's how it's going to Depends swim. on what you're wanting to do. Yeah. I mean, I like a variety of different, I think each head style has a different good application. This summer I had a lot of, mm. I really just fell into a groove with kind of a mini dungeon and would apply different split shot when I wanted to do something different with the head. But I liked the buoyant head of the deer hair because it gave me kind of a good amount of flotation kind of as a baseline. And then I was able to manipulate that as I wanted to with split shot. And I, I had good success doing that depending on what water type I wanted to target. I think you can make so many different streamers work well, if you manipulate, if you're willing to manipulate the weight a little bit and I'm not shy Mm -hmm. to throw some split shot on a streamer. Um, Usually really tight to the streamer is what I do because I don't like to lose contact with the motion of the head. And if I don't want to create a hinge, so I don't put it three or four inches away, but I'll slide it right up to the knot um, if I want to change the buoyancy of the head. Mm -hmm. Um, I think obviously uh, the materials make a big difference. I use a deer hair head, you know, on a bunny bullet sculpin that I use. And that does not jig down at all. I mean, it does not go up and down, up and down, rock back and forth. It's kind of, I put a little bit of weight in the middle of the body, back end, middle of the body, it kind of rides flat and then slightly head down. And like Trevor's saying, I'll throw a split shot, you know, 10 inches, 12 inches, even 14 or 16 inches above the streamer. You're going to get that head down look to the sculpin every time you kind of let off the tension. But it's not nearly as dramatic as if, you know, like a cone head or something like that. I like using different materials to get those different effects, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's either going to kind of rock 
back, you know, head up, head down, head up, head down, or it's just going to want to try to stay stabilized. And there's, you know, there's people who are big believers in all of the, I kind of like to do it all, but I mean, you're going to have people that are very bought into one way or the other. I think when it comes to sinking lines yeah, and intermediate lines, I feel like it's a little bit harder to manipulate the head. You're reliant on mending it. You're reliant on, you know, a strip and then yeah. the fly kind of kicking to the side one way or another based on how you tied it or designed it. Yeah. That's why a lot of times I'd, I've gone away, at least for trout often, to fishing the mono rig unless I need to cast really far. Yeah. Um, you can still have the same effects with fly line or sinking line. Yeah. But it it's going to cost you the ability to have contact with the fly because you have to, you often have to mend it. And when you mend it, you lose contact with the fly. And you know, when you mend it and the fish eats it, and then you're just out of position to kind of set the hook, mend it, mend it. (laughs) I think all the presentations that we talk about and things I write about, they can be done with any, 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 any leader system, any fly line system. But like you said, Bill, you, you're kind of at a disadvantage when you're trying to actually give that fly some slack and then you have some line on the water and then you need to recover that after they ate it. Mm, I would never say that, oh, you have to fish a mono rig to make all this work. No, not at all. But a lot of the head flips and things like that, to, main, to maintain really great tension and then strike detection um, and real true manipulation over the head of that fly, mm, it's hard to beat that mono rig. I have a big, really big fish that I missed. You know, when I first got into streamer fishing and I just, it's just ingrained into my brain that, you know, I threw this big mend in it and the fish ate it and it was like two to three seconds before I could, you know, strip set to get the hook into it. And it's just, yeah. Every time I think about using, you know, fly line and stuff to throw and do some of this stuff, I, I, that fish is just so stuck in my brain of missing it. Yeah. I hear you. Cause when we throw that mend, it gives that streamer a little bit of chance to pause or to not have so much tension on it. And as we already acknowledged, that's when the trout eat a lot. But now all of a sudden we just threw that mend. And then he eats. And you got to. Mm-hmm. Now you got to pick all yeah, that up. You got to catch it up. And you might not even know it. You might not even know that he ate if he's not in sight, you know? Yep. Let me ask you this. To me, this is important. What head angle? Let's break it down this way. What head angle looks like a bait fish that is holding in the current upstream yeah straight upstream right we all agree with that yes the bait fish breathe or whatever the same way as as a trout does the water has to go in its mouth and out its gills so it has to face upstream into the current not necessarily upstream but where (laughs) however the current sure into the current right and then what head angle looks like a bait fish that is escaping or fleeing or trying to get away the fastest possible would be with you know with the current downstream Totally downstream. Yeah. 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 Right. So, I mean, I kind of acknowledged that earlier, and that's Gallup's idea of this jerk strip coming across, down and across, Mm -hmm. down and across, down and across. And I'd say that if they really want to get away, Mm -hmm. they probably go straight downstream, like like Mm -hmm. Josh said. Yeah. And I I do something that I call a speed lead that I think maybe looks like that, like a bait fish that's really trying to get away quickly. What about a head angle that looks like maybe a dying bait fish or one that's in major distress i think that's the like down down and across down yeah like sideways it it alternates a little bit but 
seems like it's oftentimes trying to reestablish itself upstream, mm. but it's then being caught between that and the power of the current kind of overpowering it. And so it ends up yeah. either 45 degrees or even downstream at times, and then it'll right itself mm. and then lose it again. Unpredictable almost. Very unbalanced. Yep. Yep. Almost if it's a long enough streamer in the, in a different direction, the rest of its body, you know, like oh, where it's just, neat. where it's just succumbing to the, the current. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last thing that I think a bait fish does is it might relocate. And if it wants to go upstream or downstream, how do we think it relocates? What does a head position look like when it's relocating? Last time I was out fishing, I was kind of chasing a sculpin yeah. across the stream as I was wading in and, and he kept <laughs> kind of darting to the side kind of 45 degrees almost or even further Mm. 60 degrees and then he'd he'd sort of re-establish himself and then as he felt my vibration or saw me coming he'd kind of do the same thing again and again and he'd drop downstream a little but then rewrite himself it was these series of really quick movements and yet always ended up with him just re-establishing himself in that upstream angle so but it was a lot of his movement was to the side a surprising amount to me um, he mm-hmm. did drop downstream eventually as he kind of kept getting kicked by me further and further across the stream. But initially, he was really moving laterally, which I found interesting. Was that just because he was moving away from you? Yeah, that could be any yeah, direction. Right, like that's not unfair really for me to say. That. Which direction are they relocating, right? It could just be toward safety, you know, whatever the structure mm-hmm. is nearest. Mm-hmm. Like, And how fast are they relocating? They'll swim right to Josh because they know they can't get caught. <laughs> oh, that was good. Oh, that was nice. That was, man, that was really nice. good. That was really <laughs> good. <laughs> Did you think of that beforehand? Was, nope. Are you that quick? I'm spontaneous like that. <laughs> Austin's facing right upstream right now. I feel all good about myself. And <laughs> <laughs> I like what you were saying there, though, Trevor. Like you had that experience. You know, you saw the bait fish, the sculpin moving away from you and doing this yeah. and that, moving sideways, moving laterally. And I feel like I have learned the most about bait fish at night because you put the headlamp on and you can really see them. I don't know. There's been plenty of times during the day that you'll see a, almost a random bait fish doing things. But I've even just sat there at night with my headlamp on, I'm going to say 15 minutes at a time, just sitting there. And you know, I mean, in the shallows, they're they're just, just kind of doing their thing. And to me, they are kind of moving upstream or downstream and moving over and moving. But they don't always just hold right there, just waiting for things to come to them. At night, especially, it's like they're kind of roaming. That's what I mean by relocating. And I would say what I've observed the most, let's say when they're not scared or trying to get away from something or trying to make major movements, I do find that their head is almost always faced you know, upstream. But they're really low in the current at that point. I never find bait fish just hanging out in the middle of the river. Well, if the current is four feet deep, I never find bait fish, you know, just two feet up off the riverbed, just hanging out with their head faced upstream. They don't have the, they can't do that, right? So when I do see them with their head faced upstream, it's right on the bottom of the river. Yeah. Have you ever seen a, like a a brown trout actually attack a fish Mm. in the water? When I was fishing with a friend and, it just it like exploded out of the water yeah. and like on the other side of the bank and then it just chased this fish the whole way across the bank and beached it literally like two feet in front of us that's awesome and 
We threw a streamer at the fish and it one touch at that. Like <laughs> you would think like do. he was yeah. He was like, Oh, he's gonna eat a streamer and this is gonna mm. be, you know, easy pickings. But yeah, he had chased this fish the whole way across and like it was like a crick chub. Mm. And yeah, he just kinda beached the fish and I mean we see that most from a boat when you can occasionally see them not just chase bait fish, but really chase your streamer. You think they eat the head first mostly, Bill? We touched on this before. Yeah, I think or hit the kind of like yeah i think sometimes they try to stun it and hit it from the side a little bit i think agreed yeah and sometimes i think they're just trying to get it out of the area Mm -hmm. or they're not really trying to eat it and i think that's where right yeah you can spend like i did an entire day thinking you can you know dial it in and all you end up with is disappointment but then you came back the next day and you made it work yes you're so smart sometimes just like austin very quick (laughs) clever Anything else, guys? Head positions. Yeah. The monorig's hard to beat. It's just a whole level. Yeah. You can't even compare the <laughs> You can't ability. even compare. He's, he's all in <laughs> on the monorig. You, you could compare. He's a song. Yeah. That tight line advantage, what we were just talking about, it's what we were time. just filming today, Josh, right? I mean, that's, that is. That's a big yeah. deal. You get to manipulate that head at any moment. Depth, angle, drop rate speed it's all right there for you but it's there's the other whole, ways to do it it's too. the whole package the whole package all right there it is we think about the head of the streamer because that's where it starts because unless we're dead drifting the fly then the streamer is traveling somewhere and like any fish it has to follow its head up down over or across it's up to us to animate the fly and sell those motions to the trout make it look alive and well or look like a damaged, dying, and available food form. Consistent success comes from understanding how we perform those animations and judging the trout's response. That is the heart of streamer fishing. That's what is different. That's what is fun. And it all starts at the head of the streamer. Thanks again to my friends for a great conversation. We'll be back next week with an episode full of listener questions. So look for that one, episode nine of season five in your Trout Bitten podcast feed. Austin, will you read us out? Remember, the Trout Bitten Project is a free resource for all anglers. The website hosts over 900 articles with endless stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags, too. Be sure to find the Trout Bitten YouTube channel, currently featuring the Trout Bitten Tip Series in collaboration with Wilds Media. These are short, useful, and unique tips for your fly fishing line. Thank you for listening to the Trout Bitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment, because it really helps. Until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water. (laughs) Oh, that little half-second pause. Hey, Austin, do you have any Mitch Hedberg jokes to share with us? Yeah, I can tell one. Go ahead, please. Okay. This one will be fishing related. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch those nature shows and you got the guy fishing and he catches a fish and he lets it go.
He don't want to keep the fish, but he doesn't want to make it late for something. <laughs> Where'd you go? <laughs> I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. <laughs> <laughs> Liar. That's a good, that's a good one. <laughs> that's Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> Fantastic. The late, great Mitch Hedberg. He was awesome. <laughs>